and I'm not a fan of lawyers generally, but I think when the practice of law is done right and for the right reasons and done in a way that is compelling and caring, um, you really can change lives. And that's what I try to impart upon the students, that you have an opportunity to make a difference. Everybody goes to law school thinking they're going to change the world. But very few people come out of law school still thinking they can change the world. But the ones who think they can and then pursue that, um, it, it's pretty damn cool, actually, when you do make a difference. From cave drawings to family histories to stories around the fire, humans crave order among chaos, connection amid isolation. So we tell stories. Our mission at the Storytellers Network is to bring the art of story to the masses. Whether you're in marketing, you're an entrepreneur, or you're developing your own personal brand, telling your story effectively can make the difference between celebrating milestones and collecting unemployment. The Storytellers Network strives to help storytellers tell their stories so you can learn from the best. Now, your host, Dan Moyle. And welcome to the Storytellers Network podcast. I'm your host, Dan Moyle. We have an interesting show today, a little bit different. Uh, and I've had an attorney on before, I realized, as I was talking to, to my guest today. But this is a completely different point of view and a different story, too. So it does get a little bit heavy, just so you know. Uh, we do talk about sexual abuse and molestation. So be warned about that. Um, nothing in, in graphic detail, but that is part of uh, my guest's story and part of why he why we're talking today. So, uh, so be aware of that. Just want to give you a heads up. But um, We'll get to this story in just a minute. Uh, TheStorytellersNetwork.com is where everything is, past episodes uh, on former guests and how to tell your story better, all kinds of resources, that kind of thing. So TheStorytellersNetwork.com, wherever you're listening, make sure you go visit the website and also sign up on our email list uh, and get updates every couple of weeks on new episodes. So there you go. Now, today's guest is a former attorney who spent his career representing victims of sexual abuse and civil litigation. David Flowers is his name, and he wrote Taming the Lion Tamers about a South Carolina case of convicted pedophile Eddie Fisher and the people who protected him for decades. It's a powerful story and is the same case on which the Emmy-nominated documentary film What Haunts Us is actually based. The movie came out first, and it's kind of that 30,000 uh, 30, foot view. Uh, it kind of informs or it kind of opens people's eyes, right? And then Taming the Lion Tamers is David's account as an attorney in the case, and it brings so much more information to light. So that's who we're talking to today. Uh, David has fought for victims actually for decades using story to their advantage, and now he actually teaches upcoming attorneys about the power of story in trials. So with all that said, let's get to David's stories. So David Flowers, thank you for joining me on the Storytellers Network. And this is a, this is a new, maybe not a new one for me. I think I've had an attorney before, but this is a new one, a trial attorney. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dan. So you, David, are, are an author. You are an attorney. You worked on some pretty heavy material. Um, do you think of yourself as a storyteller as part of who you are? Um, I do, but let me correct one thing you said. I'm not an attorney anymore. I'm a recovering attorney. I like to make that clear to people. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 I do consider myself a storyteller. And in order to be an effective trial lawyer, you have to be somewhat of a storyteller. And the better storyteller you are, I think, the more effective trial lawyer you are. And why, and why is that, do you think? Well, often cases 
uh, involve very complex, either legal issues or factual issues. You may have 50,000 documents in a case. And part of the role of a trial lawyer is to distill complex issues or volumes of data or reams of documents down to make it understandable in, in a short period of time, but also that people don't feel overwhelmed. And, and one of the best arrows you can have in your quiver to do that is telling stories. And I've, I've heard it said over the interviews that I've had these conversations that, you know, story moves us, it connects us, it, it makes us feel something. And so I think I, that's what I hear you saying too, is that it's not just the data, it's the story behind it, especially I think I'm assuming in victim stories, that's what moves us, right? Yeah. And, and the story is the way that you can make the data or the difficult situation understandable. Um, that's what we do as trial lawyers. The way I look at storytelling is really twofold is, is either to educate or entertain mm. or both. But I think the unique role, maybe the unique role, maybe not of a trial lawyer is to also use storytelling to persuade because throughout the trial, we are trying to educate about what the facts of the case are. Too many lawyers try to entertain, which can sometimes, especially in the cases that I did is very inappropriate, mm -hmm. but at all times you're trying to persuade 12 people or six people, whatever the number is in various States, you're trying to persuade those 12 people in the box, why your story makes more sense. Um, and so you use anecdotes, you use small stories, um, to persuade them, not just educate them. And, and when you say story, you know, some people may think of, of again, entertainment or fiction, this kind of a thing, but in reality, story is based in, in fact, for lawyers, they need to see the truth from that side. Cause you know, let's be honest, there's always two sides or more to every story. It seems like. Right. But you're trying to get to the truth of it. And so you're using that in order to get to them, to their heart, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And unfortunately, one of the things in our culture today is this whole idea of alternative facts um, that that has been around in the legal business, unfortunately, longer than it has been in our popular culture. But it is something you have to deal with. And so whenever you are coming up with your theme of your case or your story, you have to deal with what are the other facts that you have to deal with. And you have to figure out a way to incorporate those and deal with them in some way rather than ignore them. Because if you ignore them, then the jury gets the idea, well, you're not telling me the whole story. Mm -hmm. So David, we've, we've talked before. Um, you were on a, another podcast that I'm, I'm part of. I'm not in an abusive relationship. And we talked about your book, Taming the Lions. I mentioned you're an author. So Taming the Lion Tamers. Sorry, that's what it's called. Um, so let's start there. What's a brief synopsis about your book and what led to you writing this book? What's the short story of that? Uh, a private school in Charleston, South Carolina had a pedophile on their staff. They knew he was a pedophile. He molested about 40 boys at their school over a 10 year period. When they were finally challenged to do something about him, they let him resign quietly and then recommended him for employment to other schools where he went on to molest kids for another 15 years. Uh, we ended up, he was criminally prosecuted. He went to jail for 20 years. He ended up dying in prison just a couple of years later. And then we brought civil actions against the school, against the men who knew what he was doing and did not protect children. And in a series of trials, the last trial, a jury awarded a verdict of $105 million against the school 
and those two administrators personally. Wow. And so you wrote a, the book about your experience with that and, and from the victim's point of view, obviously, and, and everything that went with that. Um, there was also a, a documentary made, uh, What Haunts Us? What Haunts Us by Paige Tolmack. It's a very, very powerful film, only 67 minutes long, but a very moving film. Was it nominated for an Emmy Award last year? One of only four documentaries nominated for an Emmy Award. So for those those listeners that are interested in that and knowing more about it, uh, I will link to in the show notes to that podcast episode. Um, I'm not in an abusive relationship. Uh, a, a, an absolutely deep and heavy subject, but very important. And and Dave, what I love about what you're doing is you you talk about again the title is taming the lion tamer. So it's those who who hold the power to keep moving these offenders around and covering up for them and you want to hold them responsible. So folks, uh, you know, listeners go, go check that out. Um, so, so story is important in law. We've established that in practicing law and in, in trials. Yes. I, I understand now you're actually teaching other attorneys to use story in their work and you're, and you're showing that. Tell me about that. How does that, how does that work for you? What does that mean? Well, I've been teaching uh, what's called trial practice at the law school where I attended, Wake Forest University Law School um, mm -hmm. in North Carolina. I've been teaching trial practice here for a number of years. And one of the ways to be an effective trial lawyer is, first of all, you need to relate to the jury. They need to like you. And the way you can do that is with stories. Rather than appearing to be a stuffed shirt, reciting a lot of Latin and legalese mumbo jumbo, <laughs> You use stories that make sense. Um, and you try, we, we actually teach to, to speak to them at a sixth grade or an eighth grade level rather than at a jurist doctorate level because people don't want to hear that. People don't like lawyers to begin with. But if you talk to them, and, and the way I teach it is, we're sitting at a pub, we're having a beer, tell me the story of your case. That's how I teach trial practice um, because that's what people are used to hearing. They're not used to being talked down to by a lawyer. And so the more effective lawyers are the ones who can condense a complex case to a story that is very relatable. And how have you seen that come to fruition? I mean, have you seen your lawyers go out then that you've taught and, and use this to great success? Um, I can't cite you any examples, <laughs> but I am confident when they finish the class that I actually co-teach it. But okay. I, I, at the end of uh, the class, I'm confident that they are—they have a very good skill set to go and try cases in any courtroom across the land. Yeah. Um, so I knew an attorney at one point who uh, I used to—I used to work in the mortgage business as a marketing person, and our compliance person and the head of legal, a lawyer. Uh, but she also used to uh, practice in trials as well for a short time, but she went to a performing arts school. She loved drama. She loved stories. So I can see the relation. Like back then I thought, boy, that's interesting. And now you're talking about that. I find it, I find it fascinating, but also like common sense. That just makes sense. Why wouldn't you have to quote unquote perform again with the truth, but you have to connect. Um, what's an example that you give students on how you did that? Well, first of all, there's an old saying in the law that all trial lawyers are frustrated actors. Uh, but, <laughs> okay. but, and some people say frustrated preachers. But uh, the, the trouble you can run into is when you overact or you over emote, and it's clear that's what you're doing, and it alienates the jury. 
Um, but you do play a role. Uh, and, and, you know, th there are ways you can play a role. For example, if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, you don't want to wear a lot of flashy gold and flashy diamonds um, because then you look like you're already worth a whole lot of money and the jurors are going to say, well, heck, the lawyer's already got plenty of money. I'm not giving him any more. Completely forgetting about the client that you represent. Some lawyers will dress down. Some lawyers will dress up. Um, there's different ways that you can play a role. But the role I always wanted to play was just sort of the messenger, the storyteller, to try to persuade the jury why they should rule in my client's favor. In spite of all the things they're hearing from the other side, I want to give them a reason. And sometimes I want to challenge them. For example, in the case that we were talking about, the $105 million verdict, I challenged the jury to do something to protect children in this country. And, and I used a quote from Margaret Mead, a, a famous anthropologist and sociologist. She once said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. In fact, she said, it's the only thing that ever has. Hmm. And I said, you 12 have a chance to change the world. And they came back with a verdict that got a whole bunch of national attention. And I believe, and they believe, um, made the world a little safer for kids. And that's what we wanted them to do. What a, and what a powerful way to empower them. Again, you're persuading, right, in a good way, but to empower them mm -hmm. to think of themselves as world changers. Do you just have those quotes and stuff in your head? Like, how do you go about finding that? You know, that's a great question. I found that quote on the back of a T-shirt at a parent's night at a Boy Scout camp many years ago when my son was in the Boy Scouts. I find these stories. I don't, I don't necessarily go looking for them. Sometimes you do. Um, but I, find, I see something and I think I could use that one day. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll give you an example of that, if you don't mind. Sure. In, in a defamation case where someone has defamed someone else's character. It's very difficult to understand sometimes how words can be spread and the effect of words being spread. So I came across this great story where it took place back in the old country, way back before automobiles and combustion engines and everything else. And there was a woman in a, in a small village who had said some things about one of the village elders that were false and they were, they were mean. And, and so the elder was on his deathbed one day and she came to him and said, I'm sorry, I spread these things about you and I shouldn't have done it. Will you forgive me? And he said, before I forgive you, I want you to do a couple things for me. And she said, sure, I will do anything for you. He said, I want you to go home and I want you to find your plumpest hen. And I want you to pluck all the feathers out of that hen. And I want you to bring me those feathers in a bowl. And so she hurried home, found the hen, uh, plucked all the feathers from the hen, brought the bowl back and said, okay, I've done what you asked. Now will you forgive me? And he said, well, we're not done yet. Now I want you to take that bowl of feathers and I want you to go into the town and I want you to put two feathers on every single street corner in the town. And when you've got two on every single street corner, I want you to go to the top of the bell tower and I want you to throw those feathers into the wind. And so she was gone about a half a day. She completed it. She came back very exhausted and said, okay, I've done what you asked. Now will you forgive me? And he said, just one more thing. Now I want you to go gather all those feathers back up. And she said, well, of course I can't do that. 
And he said, and thus your words against me. And when that was used in a particular trial, my colleague, the other side, threw out some more false statements in their closing arguments. When he stood up, he just said to the jury, you see those new feathers go floating by? Did you see those right here in the courtroom go floating by? And it's wonderful imagery that gets the point across. And the jury, in that case, returned a, a tremendous verdict as well. Mm -hmm. It helped them understand, you know, uh, too often, especially nowadays, someone will say something false and they say, oh, I'm sorry. But especially now with the internet, if somebody puts something on the internet, it's hard to conceptualize how vast that could be, where those words go, mm -hmm. and then how a simple I'm sorry oftentimes just isn't good enough. Right. And, and what an, again, what an incredible way to use story to illustrate those things. Um, I mean, I just, I picture you just having a notebook full of stories about, okay, I'm going to thumb through this now and which one do I want to use for this trial? So, <laughs> well, there's actually, there's actually resources. There are books. There's a great one written by a, a federal judge in South Carolina. His name is Joe Anderson. It won a bunch of awards in the legal world, but what he did was collected examples hmm. of all of these things. And so if I, if I need a, a you know, uh, anecdote or a little synopsis of uh, how to explain a breach of contract. He has examples in there. And when I first started doing this, it was really uh, shortly after I got out of law school. And I found a couple that I really liked. And I asked my colleague, Greg Myers, I said, do you think it's okay to steal this stuff? And he said, as long as you steal the good stuff, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> so I, I did keep some examples and, and actually found myself, once I found some really cool stuff, hoping to get a case where I could use them. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So David, what, what's the difference for you between getting ready for a trial and maybe writing a brief and then writing this book, Taming the Lion Tamers? Is it as a storyteller, are they completely different? Are they related? How is that for you? Very different, I would say. Um, in, in the midst of a trial or leading up to a trial, it is very um, intense. It is, you eat, sleep, drink, especially cases like I did that are um, very difficult subject matter. Um, you don't sleep very often, and you have this tremendous burden on you to win the case for this victim whose life, in many instances, is just a train wreck. And they've placed their entire trust in you to persuade this jury that they were telling the truth. That's a, that's a tremendous burden to have. And so it's very much in the moment because trials are very time restricted and judges will ride you about, get, let's get on, let's get on, let's get on. But then with the book, um, this particular book, what I did was right after the events occurred, um, I recorded them because I knew it was an important story but I didn't do anything with it. I thought about getting it published, tried to get it published, didn't really make much of an effort, but it wasn't until last year when the film came out, the, the film is sort of a 30,000 foot view of this story. And at screenings I was asked to attend around the country, people were constantly asking questions for more details. So what I did was I dusted off this manuscript and then I took some time to think about what it was I wanted to convey. So I had time to, um, think a lot of things through. And most of it was sort of paring down, making the story shorter, mm. which as you well know, oftentimes is more effective uh, to shorten the story so that you don't bore somebody. 
Yeah. Um, this book started out much, much longer than it is right now. And what I did was condensed a lot of stuff. Um, I use a lot of transcripts in the book and I summarize some of the transcripts. And so my immediate response, the difference between telling a story in a trial and telling a story in a book is, is time. It gives you the opportunity to um, reflect, if you will, on what the themes are you want to have in the book and what you don't need in the book, frankly. Yeah. How, so this, I mean, it was transcripts. So it's not like it's your, your thought process, your creative like ownership. It's, it's other stories that come into this, but how hard is that process to pair it back when you know, you want to tell the story? How difficult was that to pair it back? Well, first of all, a, a lot of that was my thought process because I was the one asking the question. So I had to do the work to figure out the questions, ask these people. Um, that was, that was the first part. And so I don't feel like I'm taking anything from anybody else because those were my words, but I'll tell you a great story about what you just mentioned. The hardest part of writing this book for me were the victim statements up front. Mm. For those who haven't yet read the book, I opened the book with the criminal plea hearing of the mm. pedophile because I want to give the reader a sense of the devastation that was done to so many lives because of what these school administrators did. I, I wanted them, as they're reading the school administrator's words, their ridiculous, awful words, I want the reader to already have in their mind what this caused. And so the difficult part for me was, I did not think it was my province to mess with those guys' words. I thought the words they gave were so heartfelt and so gut-wrenching and so raw that I had a very difficult time paring those down. Mm. I felt like I was almost letting the guys down. But over time, and after talking to a number of people, um, I was persuaded that because I think in the book right now, it's about the first 30 pages. If I had the entire victim impact statements of all of them, it was closer to 80 pages. Wow. Um, and I had a lot of people say, that's just too much. Um, and so what I did was try to condense them down, summarize a little bit. And I hope that I did it in those guys' minds fairly because I tried to keep the essence of what they were saying. That was one of the most difficult parts of this book. Not only paring those words down, feeling like I had the not the opportunity, but the, um, the right to do that. Once I got comfortable with that, then the second question was, where do I put that plea hearing? Because chronologically, it actually takes place right in the middle of the case. But I put it up front for the reasons I said a minute ago, to give the reader a sense of what the rest of the book caused. I think it's a very powerful tool. I mean, as I, as I opened the book, yeah, it was just slap you in the face. Yeah. This is heavy. Um, and, and I had to imagine, uh, I'm going to just surmise this, uh, assume this, guess this. It's quite a burden and quite heavy to take on the story of your uh, your charges, right? The victims and all of these cases, whether it's the Porter Goud, Porter Goud case or any other kind of abuse case, that's quite a burden to bear. How much responsibility have, did you feel having to be the steward of that story to the jurors? Uh, a lot. Uh, it, it is, I mean, any lawyer who tries any case, it's a burden to represent your client. But what's unique about these cases, one of the things that's unique about these cases, there's a lot of unique aspects of these cases, but one of them is most victims of abuse don't trust anybody. Mm -hmm. They don't trust their parents. 
They don't trust their siblings. They don't trust their spouse. They don't trust their boss. And yet they put their trust in you Hmm. and they tell their story to you and they hand to you in some ways their well-being Hmm. because part of the pressure is if you go through this civil litigation process and you lose, your client is likely worse off than they were when they walked in your door. And it's not necessarily because of anything you did. It's because they were rejected by the jury mm. or rejected by the judge. And, and oftentimes, you know, if they were having difficulties in their life before they came to your office, if, if you are not successful getting what they wanted in the civil litigation, they're worse off. And that is, um, that's pretty tough stuff. That's heavy duty stuff. Um, fortunately, um, in my career, um, I was able to be successful in most cases, not all cases, um, especially, you know, when you have a really esoteric legal nicety, for example, the statute of limitations, you know, there are many cases where everything the plaintiff says can be true, but they've waited too long to bring their case and an appellate court will throw the case out of court saying you waited too long. Um, that's a very difficult thing to, to explain to a client. Mm-hmm. Yes. We believe you, but sorry, you waited too long. And as, as that storyteller, as that steward of that story, when things are that heavy, how do you cope with that? I mean, I, I, like I, I know for the listeners, David and I have talked um, in our previous conversation and a little bit offline, you've had some struggles. What do you do to cope with that? Um. I found my solace and let me begin with this because of the work I did and the number of cases against religious institutions involving religious persons. um, I'm not a person of faith. I I admire people who have faith because that's where they find solace. I find my solace in wilderness. I spend weeks and, and literally months at a time in wilderness areas apart from human beings. Um, because not only because I was a victim of sexual abuse by a person in a position of authority over me, but I, I just got to where I didn't trust anybody. But as a result of that, the people I trusted most were my clients. The ones who, you know, we've sort of, we've been down that road together, even though the facts weren't the same, we've been there. And so when I saw their pain, I knew their pain and I knew, or I, I had a sense I knew I shouldn't be too arrogant. Um, I thought I could talk about their story in a way that a lawyer who had not walked in my shoes could tell. And I think I did a pretty good job at that. I mean, you know, I say to people by conventional measures, I was successful. I had a number of verdicts of seven figures, had a nine figure verdict, a lot of settlements in the seven figures, eight figures, um, lots and lots and lots and lots of money, which I ended up giving all away by the way. Um, I live a very simple life now. So by conventional measure, I was a, su- a successful lawyer, but my, my measure and my colleague, Greg Myers, he and I did this together in every case we ever settled, we demanded and got non-monetary concessions. For example, uh, a fund set up for victims to come forward anonymously and get therapy, uh, hotlines for students, retraining of, uh, teachers, Um, We even had one case where we had the entire 
board of trustees of a school resign and promise never to be in the field of education again anywhere. Wow. Um, the, the case was so outrageous. And so we would do these things because we cared and, and we really did want to make the world safer for kids. And, and I sleep very well at night, confident that we did that. We didn't win every case and we had some pretty tough, you know, I, I say in the book, or I say, I think on the author page on Amazon, I say, I, you know, the highs are high, but the lows are pretty damn low. Mm -hmm. um, I lost a client or two. And that's uh, where you feel that is in the next case. You know, you don't want to lose that one too. And that's where it can get pretty heavy duty. So is that the motivation sometimes then is, is the, a previous case or a previous misstep or a previous loss or whatever to just keep doing better? It's a good question. I, it wasn't necessarily to do better, but it was to learn from that mistake. Okay. Um, you know, the cases are different and, and I don't, and maybe that is saying the same thing, do better. Um, but I never tried to compare the cases because the facts are just so different in all of them. Um, but you know, as a lawyer, sometimes you might do something in front of a jury that you think is going to work and it doesn't. So you don't use it again. Hmm. Um, but what I would generally try to do, excuse me, is try things out on other people before I got in front of a jury. You don't want the jury to be your testing ground. Hmm. Uh, in fact, the closing argument I gave in this case, the hundred million dollar uh, verdict, I actually told my colleague, I left him a voicemail one day and said, if you get us to the jury, if you win all the legal arguments and get us to the jury, I'm going to get us a hundred million dollars in punitive damages. And he kind of kidded with me and said, only a hundred million, really? That's all. But what I did with that argument, and it's only about a three minute argument, is I, is I ran it by a number of people that I knew and trusted. And with the responses I got, I felt comfortable enough to take it to the jury. And then it's sort of funny story. Uh, they came back with only $90 million in punitive damages. And so as the judge is speaking to the jury, he leaned over to me and he said, you said a hundred million, you keep screwing this up and I'm not going to let you do the closing argument anymore in these cases. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> that's funny. Man, that's incredible. I, I can't like, I would think that that story that would lead to that would have to be longer than three minutes. How do you, how do you get, all of that into just three minutes, David? Well, the case was, was split. There was what's called an actual damage phase and then a punitive damage phase. And the way it played out was we didn't get the really bad evidence into the first part of the trial because the judge was hoping we'd lose that trial. And we only got the really bad evidence in if we won the first half. Okay, so if the plaintiff wins the first half, then you get a chance to get punitive damages. Well, the school essentially put all their eggs in that basket and argued that they were reasonable. Every time they got information about this bad guy, they acted reasonably. Well, then when the, when the plaintiff won that part of the case and we moved to the punitive damage phase and we showed the jury, that's just a big fat lie. They didn't act reasonably. They acted ridiculously. And so when I stood up to the jury, what I essentially said was, I don't need to embellish or enhance anything. Here's the documents. I showed him three documents and said, you need to send a message that is loud enough and clear enough to every school administrator across this country that they better do, be doing everything they can to protect kids. And I said, what's that going to take? A hundred million, 200 million, 300 million. 
You just make sure it's big enough to get to be the headline on every newspaper from New York City to Washington, D.C., to Honolulu, to Dallas, to Miami, to Nowheresville, Nevada. You make sure that those school administrators wake up tomorrow and they call their consultants or whoever they talk to and say, come over here this morning. Let's uh, review our policies and make sure we don't have a situation like they had in Charleston, South Carolina. And that's what the jury responded to. And is that, that argument, by the way, is now in one of those books that gives examples of how to how to make arguments to juries. Nice. Very good. Very <laughs> was, good. Yeah, pretty honored to have that in there. That's awesome. Congratulations. So is that what these big punitives settlements are for is to send that message to institutions? Yes. And the thing that I would love for your, your listeners uh, or viewers to know is everybody always talks about punitive damages and runaway juries. The insurance companies and the corporations of America want to couch it as punitive damages and runaway juries. And the, and the, the conventional, the paradigm is the McDonald's, uh, hot coffee in the lap case and a jury awarded $3.2 million. If people were to learn the facts of that case, they would learn that that was a very reasonable verdict. Mm -hmm. But here's the point I wanted to make. Punitive damages are also called exemplary damages and to make an example of, and that's what I said to the jury in this case, we're not asking you to punish those guys because they were both dead by the time of the trial. I said, we don't want you to punish them because they're dead. We want you to make an example of them. And that's what they responded to, was they made an example out of the, these two administrators to send that message to other administrators across the country that they better be doing everything they can to protect kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then that's, it's funny that you bring up the McDonald's one because I've read that too. And people, you know, in my own life will make, not even related to anything that we're like just random comments about, Oh, like the McDonald's coffee is too hot. Well, no kidding. And it's like, no, hold on. I've, I've read a little bit about the background. It's like, no, the, like corporations. And, and, and I'm a capitalist. I have no problem with people making money, but like these corporations, they right. need to be sent a message or these institutions, they need to be sent a message, whether it's a school or corporation and, and you only get to them through their pocketbook. So very interesting. You also said, yeah, the background, Briefly to that case was McDonald's was making, as I recall, now these numbers might not be exactly right, but I think they are. McDonald's was making about $1.6 million a day on coffee, just on coffee. Mm -hmm. And many, many people around this country had been burned and burned badly. Mm -hmm. And they knew people were being burned badly because they were selling coffee at a temperature that would burn human flesh on conduct, on contact. And what the plaintiff's lawyer in that case said was, award two days of coffee revenue, two days, just two, that'll get their attention. And when the jury did that, you know what happened the next day? They brought the, the temperature down. of that coffee came down. <laughs> yeah. The temperature of the coffee came down. That's right. There you go. It worked. It was effective. Yeah. And that's why I think the civil jury system is the most effective vehicle for social change in our country. I really believe that. That's why pintos aren't killing people anymore. That's yeah. why a lot of things are asbestos industry is out of business as it well should be. And that's because of civil juries. Um, and, you know, there's always the outlier that maybe that, you know, that was a, a frivolous case or whatever, but for the, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, the, they really are changing the world, man. There's no question there are frivolous cases filed, but the truth is those get thrown out of court. It is, it is almost 
non-existent that a frivolous case ever gets to the jury ever. But whenever there's a big verdict that hurts a corporation, what you will hear is a public relations campaign screaming about a runaway jury and punitive damages are very, very, very rarely awarded, almost never awarded. Hmm. Now you said something earlier too, that kind of really kind of made me pause. You said the, the, the judge didn't want you to win the case. What's that about? That, that seems counterintuitive <laughs> to what a judge is. Part of, part of this story is some shenanigans that were going on behind the scenes. There was a senior judge in Charleston who was connected to the school. Um, he made a, a document disappear from the public files, which is probably illegal. And the judge who actually tried these cases at the time was a junior judge. And we know that he was having an awful lot of contact with this senior judge. And he did some things during this trial that were way over the line of what's proper and what's not proper. Um, And I don't want to give any spoilers, but he did some things during this trial. In fact, I've had a couple of people call me after they've read the book and said, is this guy still a judge? Um, But I will tell you this part uh, in defense of him to some degree, because he he and I really locked horns quite a bit. We, We didn't like each other very much. I didn't like him because of the shenanigans. He didn't like me because I wasn't a, uh, uh, a real smart lawyer. I was a street fighter. My colleague, Greg Myers, is a brilliant lawyer, scary smart. And they would get into legal arguments that, frankly, I wouldn't understand. And I'm not <laughs> embarrassed to say that. I didn't understand them. I just wanted to kick somebody's head in. But there was a confrontation during the last trial, shortly before the verdict, that I think changed that judge as a human being. Because up to that point, he had bought into this Flowers and Myers are just grandstanding. They're in the way of getting this case settled. And he did some things that he shouldn't have done. But I think, I I don't want to spoil it, but there was a confrontation that I think made him a different person after that Mm -hmm. was over. So, so again, it goes back to the lion tamers. I mean, he's not a a principal or anything, but he was, in effect, helping this, this lion to keep his territory and we have to stop that. We cannot keep doing that. Anyway, I get, yeah, I get passionate and, about and that. Hopefully, <laughs> and hopefully it is a new day. The Cherry Sandusky case at Penn state changed a lot of things. People in this country for the first time found out, wow, the senior administration at Pennsylvania state university knew about this guy and they didn't do anything. What a lot of people don't know is the president, the vice president and the athletic director at Penn State were all sentenced to federal prison. One of them was recently overturned, but two of them, I think, served their sentences. And now what's going on at Ohio State and what has been going on at Michigan State with Larry Nassar, people are suddenly becoming aware that people in authority really do look the other way. And unfortunately, it's not an anomaly. And what I'm passionate about is those are the people we need to be going after because the Eddie Fishers of the world and the Larry Nassers of the world, they're just doing what comes naturally to them. Unfortunately, they're wired to have a sexual interest in children. But because of that, we have to rely on the people over them to protect the children. And that's what they haven't done a good job of at this point. And and, And do you think in part, the change, the new day comes from sharing those stories and being that story steward? Of course, of course, because, 
you know, as long as um, they can do it in darkness, as long as they can do it without being told about, I mean, that's the whole story of the Porter Goud case. Porter Goud would have been perfectly content if they had won the public relations battle and the civil cases would have been thrown out of court. Then they win. They really didn't care that 40 boys from their school were molested. They didn't care. And they, they didn't care before and they didn't care now. And so we have to hold those responsible who didn't care if we're ever going to make a difference. Put one bishop in prison, put one school administrator in prison, and all the other school administrators and bishop wake up with a different mindset the next day. A lot like the $100 million case, right? You want them to be thinking yeah. differently. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So, David, yeah. what's as, as a storyteller, what's one of your biggest challenges? when it comes to telling those stories, however, whichever venue you're in, what's one of your biggest challenges to storytelling? Um, great question. Uh, I guess fundamentally it's just keeping the person's attention or the group's attention. Um, but for me, I, I love to teach. Anybody who knows me well knows I have one goal in my life. I want to learn everything there is to know, period, full stop. Um, but I also love imparting that knowledge, um, whether it's how to try a case or teaching a young child how to ski, uh, water ski, or taking somebody backpacking for the first time. I use stories to try to allay their fears if they're entering a new realm or a new domain and something they're very afraid of. Um, I try to use stories to do that. I raised my daughters with the uh, mantra, face your fears, and whenever they would come across something like a roller coaster that they were very afraid of. I would try to tell them about how, you know, their safety checks. And if people fell off the roller coasters, they wouldn't be able to stay open as a park and that sort of thing. And so I try to impart and make people more comfortable, I guess is the best way to say it. And what's one of your favorite things about storytelling then as well on the other side of that? I, I actually love to hear stories. I love to hear people's stories when I meet people for the very first time. Hmm. One of my, almost the first thing out of my mouth is, so tell me your story. Yeah. Um, and I don't just want to know, you know, what their job is and how much money they make and where they went to school. I want to know what drives them. You know, I want to know what their passions are. I want to know what they've been through that shapes them into the person that they are. I'm, I'm fascinated by that sort of thing because I think we are all a product of our experiences. Sounds to me like you need a podcast yourself there, David. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing pretty good yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's it's incredible to think how powerful story can be when it comes to things like uh, advocating for victims, when it comes to things like uh, winning trials. Um, I I just I find it just super fascinating. So, in, in your classes, you're teaching uh, these upcoming lawyers how to be great storytellers. What's one of your, your biggest pieces of, of advice you give them um, before they go out into the world? Um, to understand the responsibility that they have. Um, because in many ways, they're not just representing their client's interest or um, protecting or, or helping their own client. You actually have the opportunity to persuade 12 other minds. And through those 12 minds, you have the opportunity to change a whole lot of other minds in the community. 
you can change a lot of lives as a trial lawyer. And I think it is one of the most noble professions there is. And I'm not a fan of lawyers generally, but I think when the practice of law is done right and for the right reasons and done in a way that is compelling and caring, um, you really can change lives. And that's what I try to impart upon the students, that you have an opportunity to make a difference. Everybody goes to law school thinking they're going to change the world. But very few people come out of law school still thinking they can change the world. But the ones who think they can and then pursue that, um, it, it's pretty damn cool, actually, when you mm -hmm. do make a difference. Yeah. What is it that changes them in law school to go from, I want to change the world to, I'm just going to be a lawyer? Curious. A couple of things. Um, first of all, it, it, it makes you cynical mm. uh, because you, you have to retool your mind and you have to question everything. You question everything. Um, and that's how you become a good lawyer, frankly. But then too many people stay in that rut where they stop believing in things. They start chasing the almighty dollar. Um, they care more about grades. They care more about being a partner. They care more about having a beach house you know, or a second house or a boat or something. And, and they lose sight on the nobility of the profession. Um, and that's one of the other things I try to tell them. When I was living in Kauai, I told you I lived in Kauai for a couple of years and I was a tour guide at a botanical garden. And uh, people would often ask me my story. And when I would impart my story and tell them I no longer practice law, blah, blah. I had this young couple and they were both in the meat grinder that is a big law firm where they're working 80 to 100 hours a week, oh. literally working 80 to 100 hours a week. And they're making great money, but they didn't have a life. And they were absolutely fascinated that someone could step away from that kind of life and pursue. And I asked them, what are your passions? And when they told me what their passions were, and I told them, you know, you could really do that. You're going to have to give up the, you know, the huge salaries and the big cars and all that sort of stuff, but you'll be much happier because I was happier than I've ever been in my life <laughs> and am now. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's possible. And that's what I try to import upon the ones who have gone down that path of chasing the dollar and that sort of thing. There's other ways to be happy. Clearly there are. Yep. Amen. So David, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, I, I appreciate it very much. And, and what great work you're doing teaching story to lawyers to be, to make a difference. Um, before I let you go, I've got a final question for you, but before I get there, I want to make sure everybody has a chance to connect with you. Uh, Taming the Lion Tamers is the book. Obviously it's an Amazon. Is there a best way to find you and connect with you, David? On the author page there, um, you'll find an email address. You can reach me. It's David Flowers author at Gmail. Um, and I'd love to hear from people. All right. We'll put that link in the show notes and everything else. So, um, so David, if someone were to tell you tomorrow that you could no longer be that storyteller that you are, uh, what would be your last story that you'd want to leave as you're, as you're, you're out? <laughs> um, wow. It would probably, it, it may be, this may sound vain and I hope it doesn't, but that, that an individual, you really can rise above. I, I, I came from a, a very lower middle-class background, had no intention of ever going to college or law school. I used to work at a shipyard. And one day I just decided I wanted to do this. Hmm. And I uh, worked full time the whole time I was in college and in law school, made my way through. Um, I told you I wanted to pursue this intellectual pursuit. But then when I found this passion that I had for helping these victims 
it changed my life. And, and, and the part of the story that I would like people to know is that you can do it. I mean, if I could do it, anybody could do it, but you just have to be committed to it. Um, instead of being comfortable in your, um, compromised life. I don't mean that to sound, you know, accusatory, but too many people settle, you know, and they settle for whatever they have and they're afraid of getting outside their comfort zone. But one of my favorite lines ever is, is your life starts outside at the edge of your comfort zone. That's where life begins. Um, so if you could impart a story, but that's what I would No, I think it is. I think it is. And it's, and it's from, from getting to know you, it's, it's part of who you are is to impart that wisdom and that story on others and to encourage them. So I think it's a, it's a great story to share. Absolutely. Well, David, it's been a pleasure. I do appreciate your time, my friend. And uh, gosh, thank you for all you're doing, man. Thanks. Thanks, Dan, for having me on. Always great to talk to you. Once again, thank you so much, David Flowers, author of Taming the Lion Tamers, uh, former attorney and teacher of story in law. So uh, thank you very much. You can connect with David at the links in the show notes. And if you enjoyed the episode, learn something from it, please consider sharing it anywhere you can. Tell someone about it, share it in social. I do appreciate that. And uh, yeah, go to the storytellersnetwork.com to sign up for bi-weekly updates uh, as new episodes come out and to just join the Storytellers Network. So I appreciate that. Until next time, here's to telling our stories and having those stories to tell. Cheers. Thank you.